0: Please listen carefully. carefully, 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 carefully,
2: carefully. Hello, and welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, a podcast where two reasonable social scientists analyze important topics by clearing away politics, opinions, and ideologies to get to the facts. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist.
1: And I'm Lawrence Eppert. I'm a sociologist. How's it going today, Allie?
2: It is going very well. Lawrence, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. We've got some big news today.
2: You know what? Yes, we do. I was going to even ask you about your vacation and you just, you're (laughs)
1: like, screw
2: my vacation. We've got big news. We do have big news.
1: That's right. Allie and I are very excited to announce that our show is now being distributed not only nationally across Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast platforms, but also now on 77 daily newspaper websites across the United States. This is so exciting. This network of news outlets includes so many great local papers, including the St. Louis Post Dispatch, the Buffalo News, Omaha World Herald, the Richmond Times Dispatch, the Billings Gazette, Winston Salem Journal. Napa Valley Register, Arizona Daily Star, Wisconsin State Journal, the Roanoke Times, and so many more. There's 77 newspaper sites. This is fantastic. We are so excited to be reaching an even wider audience. And we want to say thank you to everybody for your continued support. This is just amazing. Woohoo!
2: This is so great. This has been this has been Lawrence's white whale. He has been he has been so he has wanted this so much. He has worked so hard for this. Seventy seven newspapers. Thank you, thank you for making Lawrence's third dream the first. I'm sure is marrying his <laughs> wife. The second is having his children, and the third is having a platform like like these newspapers. So thank you.
1: So, uh, with our new listeners today, what are we tackling today, Allie?
2: Well, today we are going to be talking about cognitive biases. Ooh. And I know, right? And, um, and so, you know, one of, the, one of the burrs under Lawrence's saddle fairly regularly um, is getting good news. Not like happy Disney World is open news, <laughs> but, but news that is legitimate, news that is sourced, news that you could believe in. And I am with him on this. You, my friend, have done a yeoman's job of not only finding all of these great sources to help us decide what is good news, valuable, legitimate news, um but you've aggregated this great list on our website. so Lawrence, thank you for that. Um, you know and so I, I think it's really cool that that's that that's one of your big one of your big uh interests, I guess we shall say.
1: Yes, it is. And I would encourage everybody to check out the Sunday, June 13th edition of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. We actually, Allie and I and a few of our colleagues, we actually wrote an article called Healthy News Diets Help Guard Against the Dangers of Misinformation, which really set up this episode really well. And um, what we're finding is that many Americans desperately need help Differentiating legitimate journalism from biased partisanship. And this is really crucial if we're going to restore a shared sense of reality and stabilize our democracy, which is ailing in this country. And to sort of summarize our argument that we make in this article, we're currently living in what many call a post truth age, meaning that for many Americans, feelings are becoming more important than facts. People increasingly feel comfortable bending reality to their beliefs instead of what should be the other way around, you know, bending uh, beliefs to reality. And millions of Americans have lost faith in notions of facts and expertise. Now, the human brain, for all of us, whether you're a liberal or you're a conservative, is not wired to do a really good job of identifying reliable news sources. So we have these hardwired cognitive biases that ensure that what we hope to be true about the world actually biases our perceptions of what actually is true. So, and this is just built in. We tend to look for information that confirms our existing beliefs, avoid information that does not, and interpret information to make it consistent with what we already believe. So, we look for information that makes us feel good about ourselves, such as how smart we are, or how informed we are, how capable we are, and sheds a positive light on the groups to which we belong. We try to avoid information that might destabilize our view of the world, threaten our core beliefs, identities, deeply held opinions, etc. There's this quote from social psychologist Jonathan Haidt that I love. He says, when the facts conflict with sacred values, almost everyone finds a way to stick with their values and reject the evidence. Now, when I talk about this stuff in class, students always ask me, well, if humans have always had these cognitive biases, what's the problem? Why are you so worried about it right now? And I use this example, I say, you know, if you've seen the movie Jurassic Park, the dinosaurs don't pose much of a threat to the patrons. They aren't eating people (laughs) when uh, the security systems are working. But when Dennis Nedry, uh, better known as Newman from Seinfeld, uh, when Dennis Nedry deactivates those systems, well, then you have serious problems. Then dinosaurs start to eat people. (laughs) And uh, the security systems are the guardrails. So... Our information ecosystem in this country has changed dramatically in the last few decades. There's the rise of cable news, which in the words of Ted Koppel, show us the world not as it is, but as partisans and loyal viewers at either end of the political spectrum would like for it to be. Other important contributing factors include extreme partisanship, which I think we're all are feeling in this country, the dawn of the internet. A decline in trust in institutions, which create and disseminate information. So universities, media institutions, et cetera, the decline of traditional news outlets and the rise of partisan ones. So not just cable news, but talk radio, partisan websites, and the advent of social media. So again, we've always had those cognitive biases, which keep us from reasoning rationally, the problem is the guardrails have been removed and they've unleashed those biases. So what we've done, if you go to utterlymoderatenetwork.com and go to the reliable news section, what you're going to find is we have developed a lit, we've developed a list of 50 major national and regional news outlets that score well, according to three different independent news rating organizations ratings. So all sides, NewsGuard, and um, Ad Fontes Media. And if you go to our website, you can see the rubric that we use and how we scored them. But uh, these these 50 news outlets have passed all three of these organizations' ratings in our rubric, which means they're really, really good news outlets. If you were to um, build your media diet, your your news diet, Based upon a handful of these news sources, you would be getting a really reliable, incredible view of the biggest stories of the day.
2: Um, the, the comedian Stephen Colbert, when he had the Colbert Report on Comedy Central, coined the term truthiness. And truthiness was an idea that you couldn't prove because... It wasn't really true, but you just felt it like in your stomach. And cognitive biases lead us all to this truthiness that we all have. And some of these truthinesses, truthy, truthiness. Maybe it's like <laughs> moose. Maybe it's maybe it's like moose, where it's just plural. Um, all of these, you know, we all have these, right? And I give my students this example, which is very, very real, that has nothing to do with politics. For years, we had this great washing machine, and I loved it, and it was fantastic. And then it died. And you know, my as my husband said, it didn't owe us anything. Like I do fifty loads of laundry a day. Like I I love laundry. (laughs) It's all I do. I'm kind of a germaphobe, so lots of laundry. So as you know, we all stood and gave a salute, and the nice men from Lowe's took the old washing machine (laughs) out. Did you play taps? New, I think you did, did. One one tear. Faintly fell, in the background. Fell yeah. down my face. <laughs> Goodbye to you, General Electric. You served honorably. He was a general after all. I mean, you know, whatever. Um, you
1: buried in the backyard.
2: Yeah, we really did. Um,
1: really big hole.
2: It was, that was our Christmas card. That year was just a picture of our washing machine. You know, it was like, <laughs> we lost a good one this year. We lost a general, General Electric. So, um, you know, I... I loved that washing machine. And then we got this new one and it was really pretty. And And it was like a, you know, it, it just had, it had a top that was glass and it was really gorgeous. And, and it looked like it was sort of a space shuttle type deal. And I was like, okay, this is exciting. I'm ready. I'm ready for all of this. I'm ready to do more laundry. And uh, the guy said, you know, this is a high efficiency washing machine. So it only uses one third of the water that your old washing machine does. And I was like, I'm sorry. What? Like, no, 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 Take it out. Take it out. That's disgusting. Like, what do you mean? It only uses one third of the water. It's not going to get my clothing clean. And he said, no, no, it will. And I said, no, no, it won't. And he said, you can't buy an inefficient washing machine anymore. And I called Lowe's. I was like, do you have a not high efficiency washing machine? He's like, no, we really don't. <laughs> I was like, oh, rats. So we have this high efficiency washing machine. Allie Dagness,
1: environmentalist.
2: Um, And so I have, you know, my clothing looks and smells just as clean now as it did before. But I swear, my truthiness tells me, like, it's not as clean. It's not. It couldn't be. With one third the water, like, that's just nasty. Like, I don't even know how it thinks, how this newfangled washing machine thinks. Like, what business does it have? Like, getting my jeans. You know what I'm saying? Like, how dare it with its high efficiency? And as a result, I'm convinced that my clothing is less clean, even though not only do I not have a scintilla of proof to back me up, and I know I'm wrong. I know it's better for the environment. and I know it's better all around. I know that I'm a better person for having this washing machine. And I still, every time I fold laundry, I think, "Eh, I bet it's not as clean as it was before. That is the kind of cognitive bias that we're talking about.
1: Yes. And we all have them. So whether you're a liberal or whether you're a conservative, uh, by virtue of being a human being, you have them.
2: I remember, um, you know, the actor, uh, what is his name from um, Say Anything, John Cusack? With the the boombox over his head, you're a little young. You're a little young to to know this, but um, I remember seeing this movie in the movie theater my senior year (laughs) in high school. Um, And back
1: when they had movie theaters, and not they did have movie
2: theaters, and we didn't have plagues, we did uh, go to the movies. And um, I found out that it appears allegedly that John Cusack allegedly maybe a little um, off his rocker and like really is into raw milk or something. I mean, like something that where he was like illegally transporting unpasteurized milk across state lines, like something that was a little like, Hmm. That seems whatever. Can't and not wait to I just, see how
1: this ties back into what we're talking about. Go ahead.
2: Immediately. As soon as I heard this, <laughs> I immediately started just just completely disavowing the facts and going, you know what? I bet he has some sort of maybe he's lactose intolerant. Like maybe. And <laughs> I, I bet he has a of, good reason. I'm sure he has a very good reason. I'm sure because, you know, I just adore him and think that he's a great actor. And um, it cannot be that he's just perhaps like cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Like it can't be that. I loved him
1: in Hot Tub Time Machine. Oh my God,
2: I loved him. The Time <laughs> Machine. I made my daughters watch that the other day, and they were actually at the end of it. They're like, I love this movie so much. I'm like, oh, it's good hilarious. you are my children? It is so good. It is so funny. Okay. So the current political media landscape is testing our abilities to judge what is real and find what is good. And as much as Lawrence is going to put in all of his free time and effort into helping us discover good news. Um, It still is really important that we are aware of the cognitive biases that we all have, because I know just personally being aware of these things. This allows me to as soon as I start sort of doing that kind of motivated reasoning, I'll stop myself and go now nah, I, I see what I'm doing right now. OK. All right. Let me be a little bit more honest with myself. And that's OK rationalization is very important. It is in this world. Like you can't get by a day without rationalizing. I get that. Um, But we do want to have a bigger conversation about our own biases, some that are hardwired and inherent and some that are learned. And for that, we have two wonderful cognitive uh, bias experts. We have two scholars in this field who are going to be talking with us today about this topic. Um, but first, we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back with the show. Steve Sloman and Phil Fernbach, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having us.
2: I was so excited when I found out that you were going to be joining us because I learned about your book um, when it first came out, and I learned about The Knowledge Illusion because it, it spoke to me. Um, I have spent many decades thinking, "Oh God, if the zombie apocalypse happens, I don't know how to. I don't know how to fix um, my bicycle. I don't know how to fix my <laughs> toilet. I don't know how to do things." And then when COVID hit, I thought, "Oh God, it's happening. I don't know how to do anything, and it's it's here." And so. What am I going to do? And my husband sat down with me and said, what do you need to do that you don't know how to do? And I, I, made, I took a big piece of butcher block paper and I said, okay, what we need to do is we need, we need food. We have electricity, so we don't need to do that. And he said, okay. And I said, so we need, we need to organize our food. And he said, do you know how to do that? I was like, yeah, I'm really good at that. He was like, okay. Then it's not the zombie apocalypse yet. You don't have to worry about the knowledge illusion yet. We don't need to outsource like the hard stuff yet. And I said, okay, in that case, I'm ready for this. And so I managed our food really, really well. And I just want everyone to know that when the zombie apocalypse happens, I won't be able to fix anyone's toilet. But if you need food management, like I'm your gal. (laughs) Um, And all of that is to say that the, the, argument of the book that we really don't know what we don't know, spoke to me in this very, you know, like existential way, because I think we walk through life thinking, oh, yeah, I got it. Um, Except those of us who are deeply insecure, who walk through going, oh, my God, I don't have it. And I and I don't know what's going to happen when I am tested. So what I would love to hear is how did you both Realize how little we all know, and what inspired you to write the book.
0: Well, so so can I just tell you how I responded to the pandemic or the zombie apocalypse?
2: <laughs> yes, um, please.
0: Which was a little different than than your. Before we answer your question, um, so first of all, if you know how to organize food, um, maybe you can give your number after the podcast. Oh, so sure. <laughs> the next time around, you know my concern. So. We can figure out what we can do and what we can't do, right? What the book is really about is how we don't understand how the world works as well as we think we do. So when the pandemic came down, my fear was that the world was going to implode or explode. There were going to be terrible things happening, and I was going to be completely lost because I was unable to predict what was going to happen. But not only was did I think I was unable to predict it, I thought nobody was going to be able to predict what was going to happen. So it was that sort of more general chaos where we've lost control over society. That's what I was scared of. And actually, that's what zombie movies take advantage of, I think. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah there there's it's sort of interesting um that there's a paradox at the the heart of human beings which is something that we sort of start and motivate the book by which is that at the same time that we have our incredible deficiencies um we're also incredibly amazing in terms of what we're able to accomplish and the pandemic really um sort of uh makes that very clear like the adaptability of of society and human beings you know if you ask me Uh, two years ago, um, what's going to happen? The entire, you know, the entire world's going to go on lockdown for a year. People aren't going to be able to go to school, not going to be able to go to work. I would have thought we were going to be in that, in that post-apocalyptic wasteland with, uh, you know, cannibals marauding the streets, but instead, you know, we had our problems, but, uh, it's really incredible how people were able to shift and change the way they behave and all that kind of stuff. So, um, it's, it's pretty deep, uh, observation like none of us individually understood much about covid or about the economic impacts or about any of these other kinds of big issues and yet collectively we were all able to adjust in a in a pretty remarkable way so it's a, it's actually a really good illustration of of uh, of of one of those major themes of that we talk about in the book
1: if you had to if you had to sell the book to somebody who hasn't picked it up uh what would you say are the overarching big take-home messages from your from that book?
0: So, there are two. Um, and, and each of the comments so far has mentioned one. One is that people think they understand things better than they do, right? So, individually, we're relatively ignorant, and we don't appreciate that ignorance. And then the second point is that as a collective, as a society, as a a race, where we do incredible things. And we do that because we work together. The way we put it in the book is we live in a community of knowledge. So we have to appreciate our um, existence as a collective, as people who cooperate in order to accomplish things. We never actually responded to the first question that was asked which is how we got into this. And, um, you know, I actually think it's kind of telling. So the way I got into it is I've been studying how people reason for decades. And I was constantly amazed by how poorly people reason. There are all sorts of mistakes we make. But not only do we have biases, we also just don't seem to know very much. And, you know, I ran studies where I asked people um, to describe certain common things like how a chair works or what the properties are of a bird. And people were amazingly superficial. And so on one hand, there was that, that my work in cognitive science um, revealed to me that people are rather, are, are more ignorant than I expected. But I also was watching TV, watching the news on TV a lot, and I was shocked by how superficial the conversation was. How it was always the same topic and this running narrative, and nobody seemed to have a new idea or be able to conceive of things in a new and different way. And so that's what made me really want to study how it is that we, you know, live our lives succeed to the extent we do
3: despite being individually so ignorant. Yeah. And I I think another thing that motivated us is that what we're seeing in our, in our society is that, um, people are becoming stronger and stronger in those views and polarization is increasing across the aisle and people are getting more and more intense. There's, um, what we call affective polarization, increasing animosity and all this kind of stuff. And um, like one reason that could happen is because you have people with major ideological differences and people kind of understand the issues and they're going further apart because they really feel differently about the world. But that did not appear to us to be what's going on at all. Um, it's not like people understand the issues more and more deeply over time. Um, this sort of level of ignorance that um, individuals have about policy has kind of remained the same. And yet... Uh, we're getting further and further apart and it's really crippling, uh, policymaking. It's crippling social cohesion. It's, it's having all these really, really toxic effects on society. And so we, we, we sort of said, man, you know, this, this sort of basic cognitive science properties, this illusion of explanatory depth that we talk about, um, might have some really important implications for understanding some of the issues that society is dealing with.
2: And this may be jumping the gun a bit, but isn't from everything that I read, because that's those are the waters in which I swim about polarization. That's really on purpose. I mean, it's just hitting right at feeling and not at knowledge. I mean, it's it's kind of taking knowledge, throwing that away and just getting right at the emotive, you know, that kind of emotional.
0: So I, I think that, that, that that's right in a certain way. But I'm going to push back on the idea that we can separate processes of thought, thinking from emotion. The two are really tied together really, really deeply. And and so I I don't think that we should think about, you know, affecting people's emotional lives without affecting their thinking lives. Um, There are certainly different levels at which we can think about things, and there are also different levels at which we can emote, at which we can feel things. So the way I would put what you're trying to say is there's a tendency to appeal to people's intuitions and to avoid appealing to their ability to deliberate, to avoid appealing to their ability to analyze things, which is you know a slightly different take on, on what you're trying to say, but it's a, it's a difference that matters. Because it means that in both cases, you know, information is relevant, right? Like you can influence how people are thinking about things. The question is whether people are thinking thoughtfully or whether they're just thinking automatically, reflexively.
3: Yeah, I I think certain kinds of thinking also sometimes they tend to come along with certain kinds of emotions as well. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the thinking causes the emotion or vice versa. So like, for instance, um, if I get you really stirred up and angry, and then I ask you to think about a policy dispute, you might think about it in kind of simplistic terms. Like I'm just mad and you're wrong. Um, but the reverse is also true, right? If I give you an oversimplified view of a policy dispute, it might make you angry. Um, so, this sort of causal pathways what in 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 the scientific world we' talk about the causal directionality or the causal pathways, um, I think Steve and I both um agree I, I don't know Steve can chime in that it's not so simple as saying that a causes b in the in the real world, like a causes b, b causes a, A causes B, which causes C, C causes a and b so so there's a lot of different things going on all the time um and and um And so a lot of these things sort of come together, but sort of sussing out, oh, you know, there's a simple causal explanation for these kinds of things is usually not the case. The real world is more complicated than that.
2: I mean, of course, yes, absolutely. It is more complicated. It also, you know, there are certain um, choices that different political actors make, right, you know, in order to trigger, you know, that kind of emotional response. Um, and the rejection of any kind of deeper conversation and the selection of specific topics and the rejection of different topics. Um, You know, so yes, I think that you are absolutely positively correct.
3: There's this, there's this cool paper um, that talks about um, the um, nuclear uh, proliferation in Iran, and does sort of a a bit of a sociological study of what what happened in Iran. um, While the government there was trying to support Uh, the development of nuclear weapons. And what was observed in that paper was that it started off by talking about sort of costs and benefits of a nuclear program and so on, but that the leadership in Iran actually purposefully shifted the discussion to to talking about fundamental rights. It's our right, our fundamental right to pursue nuclear power nuclear weapons. And it no longer was about costs and benefits and trade-offs and uncertainty. And it turned into a very black and white and simplistic kind of thinking. And so I think that that's the kind of thing that you're talking about, which is that sometimes it is an explicit um, action by our leaders to try to simplify and to try to engage in that kind of stuff and appeal to emotion and appeal to intuition. However, what I will say is that that's not at all the whole story. Like a lot of, of this is, is, is um, this complex stew where you do have some bad actors engaged in sort of explicit manipulation, but you also have entire groups where everybody is kind of just going along with the way that their minds normally process information. And that can lead to entire groups sort of becoming allied around ideas that don't have a lot of basis in fact. Um, so it's not just about explicit manipulation; it's also about kind of bottom up the way that these processes can sort of generate these these outcomes in a natural way as well. So, so both things are going on, I think. You guys, uh,
1: you begin your book with the story of Castle Bravo, which is obviously a horrifying uh, historical event, but then you you tie it in really interesting ways to our, our cognitive biases and and some of the the dysfunctions in our reasoning. So. Could you just give a brief summary of of your argument there, and 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 how you start that book, the book out?
3: Uh, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. Um, the Castle Bravo uh, was was part of um, the development of fusion bombs in the nineteen fifties. So um, after World War II, the United States was working on um, even more powerful weapons than the type that were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, these are fusion bombs with just orders of magnitude more power. And um, what, to test these things, what they did was they did um, uh, tests in the South Pacific, trying to be as far away from any habitable places um, as possible, because these, these explosions are extremely powerful. And uh, we relate in the book, um, one of the uh, uh, really um, uh, uh, disastrous outcomes was this uh, Castle Bravo test, where they blew up this giant fusion bomb. And um, they made some mistakes in terms of judging both the power of the bomb and the direction of the wind currents. And they ended up irradiating um, some atolls, some islands in the South Pacific that were inhabited. Um, And um, it's actually the case that you still can't go back to those islands. Um, They had to um, vacate the entire population. They killed a bunch of people. Um, And uh, it was a total environmental disaster for those areas. Um, And it's, again, this crazy demonstration of the incredible ingenuity and um, innovation, innovativeness of human beings. We went from discovering the nucleus of the atom um, to building fusion bombs in the course of just a couple of decades. Um, And yet um, we managed to blow up a bunch of atolls in the South Pacific, which is pretty incredible. So, it's, again, that sort of uh, uh, two-sided, you know, double-edged sword of of humanity's genius.
0: So, it's an example of ingenuity and brilliance, but it's also an example of hubris, right? And that's kind of the theme running through the book, that people are full of hubris because we fail to appreciate what we don't know. And relating that to what um, was just being discussed, you know, the One way to think about the theme of the book is that we tend to think about things in terms of our basic fundamental values, right? which of course makes sense. These are the things that govern our moral lives. These are the things that we care about the most. But the problem with thinking in terms of fundamental values is that it simplifies, and we believe it oversimplifies. So, you know, we can have as much of a conversation as we want about how important, say, universal health coverage is or, you know, keeping government off our backs. But in the end, if we're going to construct policy, if we're going to build a society, we have to think in much more detailed mechanistic terms about how our society is actually going to work. That conversation about basic values is just not enough. And we tend to think that we know how things work, when in fact all we really know are our basic values, and
3: that's the problem with hubris. In that particular case, um, the scientists actually um, did not have a good enough understanding of the uh, surficial sort of properties of the lithium in the in the bomb, which is pretty remarkable. You know that that we would blow up a bomb without really understanding um, the mechanistic processes of, of, uh, of how this fusion reaction is going, going to occur. And so the, the yield of the bomb ended up being two or three times what they expected, which is, which is pretty crazy.
1: <laughs> you guys have a great line, uh, early in the book, you say the human mind is both genius and pathetic, brilliant and idiotic. <laughs> I love that line.
3: <laughs> I, I got to give Steve credit for that one. That, that was his, 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 uh, his, his beautiful uh, prose there.
1: Why don't you guys give us a a brief colloquial definition of of what cognitive biases are, and then uh, let's talk about the ones that are most frequent and destructive in our everyday reasoning.
0: Well, cognitive biases have um, referred to the fact that uh, people make judgments and decisions and, and reason in ways that don't conform to ideal judging and decision-making and reasoning. So on one hand, you know, we can say things about what the best way to make a decision is, and it turns out that people use procedures for decision-making that are not ideal they're generally pretty good, and it makes sense that we evolve to use these procedures because they're very fast and effective, but they also produce systematic errors, right? So, you know, one very straightforward example is our tendency to stereotype, right? When we see other individuals, um, we stick them into categories and often fail to notice their individuality. Why do we do this? Well, it's an incredibly effective tool for getting around the world, um, without putting out a whole lot of effort with minimal information. So it makes a lot of sense. You know, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck, but sometimes it's not. <laughs> sometimes it's actually, um, a hologram of a duck or a movie of a duck or someone's piece of art or something. So there are certain systematic errors we make, and sometimes they matter. Um, So Kahneman and Tversky are the famous psychologists for sort of bringing this into the modern discussion of judgment and decision-making. Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize a, a number of years ago for this work. Our contribution is to try to change the discussion from one about how individuals make judgments and decisions, to one about how we make use of others in order to make judgments and decisions. So the the bias or the the heuristic, the rule of thumb that we propose that people use, um, sometimes I refer to as the outsourcing heuristic. Right, that is, we we outsource a lot of our reasoning to others right? So we outsource fixing the toilet to the plumber because the plumber knows a lot more than I do about how to fix the toilet. And what's interesting about this heuristic is that we don't always know that we're doing it, right? So we think that we're making political decisions based on our values, but in fact, we're making political decisions often based on what our leadership tells us to do. We outsource the reasoning to the leadership,
3: yeah, just just to add one thing, um, sort of riffing on what Steve just said, and i, I don 't know if this is the right time to go into this now, but um, uh, it, one important distinction is between the two different systems of reasoning, sometimes called System one and system two and if any of your um, your, uh, your your listeners have uh, read uh, Danny Kahneman 's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, it's one of the most important distinctions in that book. And actually, Steve h- is one of the um, people who um, who who wrote some of the earliest uh, academic research um, supporting this distinction. And the idea is that we have two different systems for coming to our our judgments or our choices. One of them is fast and automatic. That's system one. It's evolutionarily ancient. That's what happens when you just kind of, feel that you know the answer with your intuition and you're not aware of sort of what's going on behind the scenes in your mind. The other system is called system two, and that's the more deliberative system where we're actually aware of the process that we're going through when we're making a choice. Um, Think about um, trying to solve a math problem in your head and you're actually talking to yourself as you're doing it. Um, What is the case with, with a lot of heuristics and biases is that those things are um, a a product of system one. Um, And so they happen behind the scenes and we're not really aware that we're engaging in the, in those heuristics and that's why they lead to errors because if you say to someone, Oh, you just made a mistake, like what you just did, uh, the the choice you just made doesn't make sense. And you explain it to them sort of rationally, they might say, Oh yeah, you're right. That doesn't actually make sense, but it'll still feel right. um, Because, our system one sort of gave us that that answer. And so this duel between system one and system two is really one of the probably most important ideas to understand about the way human beings make judgments and, and choices um, uh, to, to understand how those two systems interact really gives a lot of insight, I think, into, into, into where biases come from.
0: So I, I think that's right, but I'm, I'm now going to give you something that you're going to want to delete, I'm sure. Um, so... Well, while, while everything Phil said is is, is right, um, I it's important to appreciate that system two has its own biases, right? So the distinction between, like, what makes a bias is not system one versus system two, right? What makes a bias is how people do things versus how they should do things. That's the question of bias. The thing is, system two has its own biases. And some of these are really important like we tend to explain things in such a way that they're consistent with our prior beliefs right so sometimes there's a, there's a class of biases that are often referred to as confirmation bias right and what they're about is sort of forcing what we already believe onto the world And I actually think these are system two biases. They're not system one biases, right? And there are other examples. So Phil, for instance, has done some beautiful work showing that when we explain things, we kind of explain them from one perspective and tend to ignore alternative causes, alternative ways that things might come about. That's another example of a system two bias,
3: yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, I actually think I disagree about confirmation bias, though, because I, I do think there's sort of a mix, but but a lot of confirmation bias. Confirmation bias for your listeners is the idea that um, when we uh, believe something already, um, and then we integrate new information, um, we're going to do so in a way that sort of reinforces what we already believe, rather than really updating our, our beliefs properly. So, if you are a QAnon believer and someone gives you some information that your uh, your QAnon belief is wrong, some evidence, you actually find a way to integrate that information in and maybe even strengthen your belief um, that you that you already had. And, and I think Steve is right that there can be cases where confirmation bias can be kind of explicit and, and you're aware, you know, when you're doing it. But there's plenty of, of, of parts of that process that I think are system one and happen pretty automatically without a lot of conscious awareness. So, um, yeah, Steve is, is absolutely right. Um, in, in my opinion that, uh, that system two can lead to error as well. But I, I, I sort of am going to stick with my argument that a lot of the heuristics um, that lead to biases that that we often talk with are pretty under the surface, and we're not really aware of of them, and that's why they they're so are so powerful. We we sometimes call that the biased assimilation of evidence, which I think is a nice term. What it means is that when um, so the rule that you should use for for updating your beliefs in the light of new evidence is called Bayes' rule. I don't know if and sometimes we call that Bayesian thinking and um, some of your listeners might be familiar with that idea, and it's it's a it's a concept that comes from statistics and probability. And the idea is that, sort of rationally, if I believe something and I see some new evidence, I should come, I should, I should take that evidence into account. And if it goes against what I already believed, my degree of belief should should actually decrease. Um, but the biased assimilation of evidence means that I don't sort of independently assess that new evidence. But that evidence is assessed with respect to what I already believe. And that can lead to some big problems because that means that if I already believe something and any pattern of data I see is just going to confirm what I already believe, then there's sort of no way to change my mind about the world. And that can lead to, to huge problems. Um, so, so, yeah, so that's a, that's a part of confirmation bias. Motivated reasoning is it's a more general term that basically means that um, I'm not an objective observer. Um, about the world, and I'm motivated to arrive at certain kinds of beliefs. So, like, if, um, if there's tons of evidence out there that I'm a total jerk or a loser, like, it's going to be pretty hard for me to actually uh, <laughs> learn about that because I'm going to be pretty motivated to think that I'm a good person and I'm smart and all that kind of good stuff. So, so motivated reasoning is this really powerful idea, but it's a sort of more general, a more general term.
2: Well, in that example, you've got a lot of—I mean, you've got your thumb on the scale because you don't want to think of yourself as being a jerk,
3: exactly, right?
2: I mean, you know, taking the the stakes away just a little bit, like making them a little bit easier to swallow. um, Some, if you had, let's say, you supported a candidate, yes, and you found out that the candidate said something that was really dumb, right? And so that's that's less of a, a you know a personal threat to you, but it's your guy, you know, or your gal or whatever. Um, have you ever, since you started all of this research, however, many, many moons ago, um, have you caught yourself kind of in this, um, have you, have you sort of taken a step back and gone, Oh man, I see what I'm doing right now. Cause I, I know that as I've done reading in this area, I've, I, I've thought, no, no, they must've missed. Oh, I see what I'm doing right here. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a step back and Move in a different direction,
0: Steve. You seem absolutely. To- I, yeah. yeah no, I, I I catch myself all the time. I mean, this this is what makes what we do so much fun, right? That we pretend that we're analyzing other people, but really we're just analyzing ourselves. And if if we weren't vulnerable <laughs> to these errors, then we wouldn't see them, right? And and the point of it is to make the errors explicit so that we can catch them, not just in other people, and certainly not just on the other side of the political divide, but in ourselves.
2: Exactly. Right? Yeah.
0: And, and, and to be honest, the effect on me is, is to see it in myself and all around me. So I see bias, you know, everywhere. I see it on the right. I see it on the left. And I often feel completely caught in the middle. And it's actually quite frustrating. Um, you know, what makes confirmation bias difficult for us as, as people to, to make use of in our everyday lives is that we, we have to sometimes make use of what we already believe in order to make decisions, right? So if, if someone tells me that the Martians have just landed in Kentucky, You know, my tendency is to ignore that person and, you know, go on living my life and figure that they're lying to me or they just read the wrong web page or, right, that it's just not true. Um, And I don't think that's bad reasoning. If I listened to what everybody had to say all the time, uh, you know, I'd never get anywhere. We have to pick and choose what we attend to. On the other hand, we can't do it too much, right? Right. We have to be open to new evidence. We have to appreciate that we can be wrong. So there's a real subtlety here. Reasoning, just the fact that we're making use of our prior knowledge in order to make judgments and decisions does not mean that we're engaged in motivated reasoning. Right. Motivated reasoning is a is a bad thing in the sense that it means reasoning to something we want to believe as opposed to reasoning to what is true. Reasoning to what is true is hard. But I think the one thing we can do is care about what
3: is true. Right. And that's, I, I, I think, actually where we go wrong. Yeah. In this, in this idea that I talked about before about Bayesian reasoning, there's the idea of your prior which is your prior belief before you've seen the evidence. And really what you should be doing is you, is integrating what you believed before with the new information, um, according to how likely the new information is under your, your hypothesis. Um, and so, so, so I, I agree completely with Steve that the prior should actually play a role in determining your posterior belief. Um, however, as he said, it, it's a subtle thing. So like, for instance, if you If someone shows you a photo of some aliens landing in Kentucky, um, now should that dramatically change your prior and you say, "Oh, yeah, there's aliens in Kentucky, probably not. Should that make you feel more strongly than you did before that there's no aliens in Kentucky?" Probably not also. So um, you need to adjust in the right direction and you need to adjust like the the right amount as well, and figuring out what the right amount is, that is the really hard part for sure. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's right. It's a totally, a subtle, a very subtle issue.
1: So, uh, these biases, um, are, are hardwired. We have them. They're, they're with us. They've been with us for a long time. Um, but there's been a lot of writing about how changes in our media ecosystem and our information ecosystem has unleashed them to do their destructive damage. Um could you guys talk a little bit about um uh, my understanding is that even the biggest partisans uh can change their mind if they hear corrective evidence enough from people they trust. Um but uh that's becoming less likely in the current media environment. We're we're becoming more siloed, right? So we're we're hearing less corrective information, our blind spots are being pointed out less often than before. So could could you could you talk about um, sort of how those biases have been with us and how our, the changes in that information ecosystem have unleashed them.
0: Our biases of indivi- as individuals, I don't think have changed very much. And, you know, they I'm sure they were present when uh, we were hunters and gatherers because they were incredibly useful. Um, but what has changed is, as you say, the amount and specialization of the information that is available to us, but also our freedom to choose who we're going to talk to, right? So so back in the day, you were kind of stuck with your tribe, right? Like I suppose you could choose who in your tribe were going to be your friends. But nowadays, you can choose essentially anybody in the world to hang out with. And so what happens is we choose people who are interested in the same things as us, who share the basic values we have, and who want to take a particular perspective on things. Um, And as a result, all all these preconceptions we come into conversation with get reinforced and amplified. And, you know, what what has been shocking to me over the past four or five years is the degree to which we're completely unaware of what other huge swaths of the population are even talking about, right? What they're thinking about, what their biases are. So, you know, what, what I think is happening is um, we're just getting more and more specialized and deeply entrenched in particular points of view and disconnected from other points of view, even though the basic cognitive operations are the same. I mean, we've been tribal for millennia, and I, and I don't see that changing. That tribalism is just getting hijacked by modern technology in kind of
3: shocking ways. Yeah, and what, one thing that's kind of amazing to see is is how little the truth of a belief or a proposition actually matters, um, because entire large communities can come to believe things that are just patently incorrect, and it seems to be the norm. You know, it seems to be pretty relatively easy, and and um, I think it has a lot to do with the idea that individuals. Um, are not really equipped to adjudicate the truth about complex issues. They're just too complex. We don't know enough. And it's not in our nature to engage in a lot of really deep thinking about these issues and really try to understand them. For most people, it's enough that our community has a particular position and that the people we trust um, seem to have the details figured out. And that's good enough for us. And um, we don't even explicitly think that thought. We don't think, Oh, our, you know, they have it figured out, but I don't. So it's okay. We sort of nod along and we say, Oh yeah, we got this. And uh, Steve has some really cool um, data suggesting that just by virtue of affiliating with, uh, uh, with, with, in a, in a group where someone's figured it out, some issue, we feel like we ourselves understand it more deeply. Um, Steve has called that. Uh, what's, what's your term for that? Uh, contagious sense of contagious sense of understanding. Right.
0: It's like the sense of understanding is like a virus. It's uh, it's contagious. If the people around us think they understand, then we think we understand, even if we don't understand at all. So there, there is actually there might be a silver lining to what Phil is talking about. Um, so while it's true that. It seems like all the conversation around us is dominated by these very narrow, entrenched opinions that um, are are self-perpetuating and are there just in order to gain their own interest. Um, Another possibility that, that recently I've started to be hopeful about, is that what's really happening is that it's the extremes that are governing and controlling the discourse. And in fact, maybe most people are sort of in the middle, and most people do actually care about truth to some extent. Of course, we all care about a good story, right? Like, that's what really turns us on, especially a good story about other people, right? but it could be that you know people would make decisions and be more open-minded. It's just that the damn conversation all around us, you know, dealing with um, people with strongly entrenched positions about what our morality should be—that these people are are really uh, you know sort of controlling what seems or making us think that everybody feels this strongly, that everybody is this narrow-minded, when in fact, if people felt freer to express themselves, they would um, express a much more moderate position and a much more open-minded position.
3: I'm I'm, I'm still hopeful that that's a possibility. There there is actually, in the polling data, a, a tiny ray of light, which is, If you look at the polling data, everybody is saying, oh, my God, we're so far apart. They're completely different than me on every dimension. I don't want to be around them. I don't want to date them. I don't want to live with them and so on. But I think this is bad and I want compromise and I want coming together. And so it has a bit of a feeling of a runaway train where um, people want a world where we're not so divided, but they don't know how to get there. And so to me, that is the ray of light. And then uh, the other way of of thinking about this is there's there's this concept called false polarization. And what the concept of false polarization is, is if you ask me, what are the positions of those across the aisle? And also, if you ask them, how do other people feel about me? Well, there is a gap. There's a partisan gap. We don't like each other. We are somewhat far apart. But our beliefs about that polarization are much, much more intense than the actual polarization. That's what they call false polarization. And so we have this perception that things are actually much worse than they actually are. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, one of the reasons, actually, Steve's kind of um, hinted at a couple of them. One is about categorical thinking. Right. You think about Republicans and Democrats and you think about this prototype and it feels really extreme in terms of how different people are. And most people are kind of in the middle. And the other thing is simplification. Um, we think about these issues really simple in these kind of black and white terms. And that gives rise to this feeling like we're so far apart. But, you know, it's like, you, you know, you want a government take, care, take over of healthcare, and you want to kill babies in the street. I mean, when you think about it that way, guess what? We're not compromising. Um, but when you actually talk to a lot of people, what they want out of a healthcare policy is kind of the same. They want people to be covered and they want good outcomes at a low cost. And so, um, the way we talk about these things, the way we think about these things in some ways is biased. It's, it's an error in some ways we do have differences, but those differences are not as extreme as we, uh, perceive. And so that gives me a little bit of hopeless hopefulness that, um, Behavioral science might be actually be able to help us. Now, it's extremely hard. It's extremely hard to change people's attitudes and and, and and beliefs. Trust me, we've been trying it for a long time. And the things that we try, if they work, they work just a teeny, teeny little bit. And uh, And so, you're really fighting against an uphill battle here. But I just think the stakes are so high. I mean, I see the direction we're going. That runaway train is headed towards the side of a mountain. And uh, it scares the the living daylights out of me. So, um, I'm not. I'm not really willing to give up my hopefulness. Um, You know, maybe I'll take it to the grave. We'll we'll see.
2: No. Well, I certainly hope not. I mean, you know, we we are with you, right? Um, That that's our mission too. Because um, one of the things that I think a lot of the studies have shown is that um, much can be done on small scale interpersonal interactions right you know that sort of large-scale stuff um doesn't necessarily work as well which steve i want to get back to your contagious sense of understanding um one did you um did you work on this during covid because that feels like that would be really funny um if you were working on contagion in a contagion and um and is there a way that because it sounds very negative when people are sort of like oh yeah i get it because you know the you know, the sort of charismatic leader or, you know, somebody gets it. So I feel like I get it. Is there a way that that could be used as a force for good? You know, like if there's suddenly a charismatic leader who turns around and is like, no, like this would be amazing, you know, like almost a superhero, but, but but who could help. Um, And, uh, and then, so that's, that's hope, but, and not to douse a whole lot of cold water on this. Um, If, if what we were talking about before was misinformation, how much does the emerging technology in terms of, of deep fakes um, scare you? On top of this, because if our if our biases, if just our hard wiring is enough to allow us to believe stuff that is, you know, so so patently incorrect just on the surface, you know, if like I'm holding up my hand and I'm saying it's my foot. And, you know, and yet then in the future, we're going to be able to have my foot actually sing an area from an opera. Um, (laughs) You know, like, how does that make us fear more? I guess if you could
0: address. Well, so there are a whole lot of questions
1: there.
2: Yeah, Um, I just I knew I knew Lawrence wanted to ask something. So I just shove like three (laughs) things in there at
1: once. Sorry. She cheated. I'm going to put five questions in one. (laughs) So Yeah.
0: I mean, I, I have thoughts about all of them, but I'm not gonna remember them all. But let me let me throw out the ones that, that I I can um deal with. So in terms of um uh taking advantage of the contagious sense of understanding, there's there's bad news and there's good news. So the bad news is I've, I've actually been surprised by the extent to which people are not willing to take the lead of their political leaders, right? So, for instance, there have been anti-vaccination campaigns where you get a quote from Trump about how he got vaccinated. And it turns out most Republicans <laughs> don't care. I mean, they're not going to get vaccinated merely because he did. And in fact, even when you get messages from GOP leadership, that turns out not to be persuasive. So, you know, I think from that point of view, our book is a, is a cognitive science book. And, you know, one reason that I, I think it's important not to say, oh, there's cognition on one hand and emotion on the other is because cognition always matters, How we think about things always matters. And it turns out that you can convince some anti-vaxxers. And, you know, just to be uh, completely open, uh, I'm a vaxxer. I think we should all get vaccinated. Uh, If you give people a causal model, that really opens them up, right? So it turns out that telling people that the vaccine just goes through you, right? Unlike the virus, the virus stays with you for many weeks, whereas the vaccine gets your body to do something healthy and then passes through you, right? That turns out to be a key to getting, to to starting the process of opening up anti-vaxxers' minds. So the good news is, that I think there are ways to take advantage of our tendency to appeal to other people for information. So I've just done some work where um, we took advantage of these things called deliberative polls. So if you're a political scientist, I'm sure you know what a deliberative poll is. It's when you get a representative sample of citizens And you just give them a ton of information. You teach them all about a subject and you give them the opportunity to discuss with experts and to deliberate amongst themselves and to have all their questions answered. And then you find out if their minds are changed. And in general, their minds are changed. At least some of the participants' minds are changed. What we did was ask the question, can we change other people's minds simply by telling them about the results of the deliberative poll? So we don't tell them anything new about issues on the table. All we say is when people like you learned all about this issue, their minds were changed in this direction. What do you think? And the notion of outsourcing, the notion that we appeal to others for our reasoning, implies that people's minds should be changed a little bit, right? And in fact, they were. So, merely saying that having all the information changed other citizens' minds in this direction caused people's minds to change in the same direction. So, that's one way of getting people to use evidence to make decisions without making them understand the complexity of a problem. So I think there is a way to take advantage of the community of knowledge. So, um, yeah, so that, that was a couple things about how uh, the sense of understanding and the people around us can influence us. And then, oh, right. You brought up the issue of deep fakes. Um, so, there's a lot to say about deep fakes. So, it's not obvious to me that deep fakes are really going to change the information landscape. And, I, and I'd also like to point out that there, it's possible that they might actually help in the sense that there may come a point where we're all so skeptical about everything we encounter, about all the information we encounter... That we kind of give up on it and retreat to some credible news source. So it's possible that out of this mess, this is like you know my optimistic side that my friends never see, um, <laughs> sort of you know uh, revealing itself. But there's a sense of we might return to a time when there are a small number of credible news sources. Uh, that we all pay some attention to um, and that gives us a common flow of information, which is exactly what we're missing these days, right? Breaks us out of our bubbles um, by virtue of the fact that we might just stop trusting everything else. So there's a little fantasy that uh, someone might enjoy. Do you find, is
2: there an increasing inability for human beings to admit that they don't know something, and I feel like that was a lot of negatives in there. Um, is it harder for us now to say I don't know when someone asks us a question? Because I feel like it is. You know, if I ask a student something, they'll answer it whether they know it or not, um, and it's perfectly okay not to know something. I mean, less so if they haven't done the readings and they really should have. But you know, in, in general. I feel like we're losing that muscle, you know, that we're losing the ability to say, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know. Let me find out.
3: I, I, both, I both agree and disagree with you. I agree with you profoundly that we do not like to admit when we don't know. And sometimes we don't even realize that we don't know. Um, however, I don't believe that it's something that's increasing over time. I think human beings have always been like that. And it's part and parcel of the way that we take in the world. Like on the one hand, we often don't realize we are overconfident about our knowledge. That's kind of what our book is all about. At the same time, we're very motivated to maintain our social standing. And um, when we admit we don't know th- things, it's sometimes seen as weakness. Um, in fact, um, there's been quite a bit of research showing that overconfidence can can convey social benefits. Um, for instance, if An entrepreneur acts really overconfident. He can get more funding or she can get more funding. And by the way, it also deters competition. No one else enters that space. So there's benefits. Theranos, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs)
2: Now,
3: now, sometimes it all comes crashing down like Theranos, and that's the danger of overconfidence. Um, But there's a reason why um, why leaders often tend to have that sort of a leadership style, um, because people react to it. Um, there are other kinds of leadership styles that are out there. And by the way, some of them work a heck of a lot better a lot of the time. Um, but they sort of cut across the grain of of what's natural as human beings, um, both because it's sort of in our nature to be overconfident about how much we know. And also because, uh, people respond positively to it. A lot of the time we, we take, um, displays of confidence as indicating competence and they don't always you know, I was giving a, um, I, I spoke to a
0: high school class yesterday, and the question was asked, um, how does one identify an expert, right? Like if we depend on others so much, then, and, and if it's the case that most of our knowledge is in fact sitting in other people's heads, well, that implies that most of our knowledge is really a matter of trust, right? Who are we going to trust? And so who should we trust was the excellent question that they asked. And, you know, I think there are multiple cues that we can use, right? Like we have to reason about who to trust and it's, it's a guess. Um, But I actually think one of the really, really important cues is the person that knows what they don't know, right? The person who's most willing to say, I don't know, or, Nobody knows, or that's a question for somebody else, right? Those are all answers that really indicate that you're calibrated in your knowledge. You know what you know, and you know what you don't know, and you're not pretending otherwise. So that's what I look for in a a true
3: expert. They sometimes call that wisdom.
1: (laughs) Let me uh, let me give you a question to end on. Uh, so, Phil, um, you said the train is heading towards the side of the mountain or off a cliff. I can't remember how you, how you put it. Um, I am as pessimistic as you can possibly be on this. Um, I think our democracy, I'm not saying it's going to break, but I'm saying there are things that could happen in the next few years where it could break. Uh, and all the things we're talking about right now are a big part of this. So, um, are you optimistic? <laughs> I mean, do you? How, how hopeful are you? Uh, and
3: and what are some suggestions for the future? So, I think one reason that Steve and I work together so well is because we we provide a nice counterbalance to one another. <laughs> I'm the optimist in on the team. I'm I'm such an optimist just about the world. And so that is one thing that's scaring me a little bit, which is that this is the one area where I've felt. Kind of scared and pessimistic um, uh, because there are so many forces that are so, that feel and seem like they are inexorably driving us in a really dark direction. Um, what I'm hopeful the, what I hope is that it gets to a point before things break down, that people say this can't continue. And as a society, we start taking it seriously and trying to figure out how to fix it. And it's not going to be one simple fix. There's no um, silver bullet. There's no this. Here's one trick to finally make everybody come together and not be polarized. It's going to take sort of an all of the above approach. Some of it's going to have to do with um, behavioral science and the kind of work that Steve and I are doing to try to figure out um, things like consensus conferences or other kinds of things that might help um, as individuals for us to sort of cool down the debate a little bit, to not be um, so um, vociferously just on one team or the other. Some of it is going to have to do with um, top-down interventions that are going to be necessary, um, looking at things like how to decrease the proliferation of fake news on social media, how to change incentive structures for politicians so that um, they're not motivated to lie about the outcome of an election, for instance, just to keep their job, um, how to reduce things like partisan gerrymandering and so on. Um, so I do not think that we're going to be able to solve this problem merely through behavioral science approaches. I think we are going to have to have some top-down interventions. Those are very hard because America – is a society that does not like a lot of top-down interference in our lives and our freedoms. Um, But of course, um, you can't have none, right? Otherwise, uh, all hell would break loose. So I am hoping to God that we are going to figure this out. And what does make me optimistic is how incredible human beings are at adaptability. I guess we can bring this all full circle to what we started with, which was the pandemic. And um, I made the comment earlier, and and I'll I'll reiterate it. If you told me two years ago that the entire world was going to shut down for a year, I I just couldn't imagine the devastation that would be wrought. And um, here we are sitting, and some people have really suffered, and I don't want to discount that. But here we are sitting um, at 6% unemployment instead of 5% unemployment and um, and with an economy that's about to start booming, having come up with uh, a dozen vaccines worldwide with incredible efficacy, and about to get our lives back um, and so on. And so uh, human beings are really incredible and we have our dark sides and our deficiencies. And that's just part of who we are. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, it does give me hope.
0: One theme of our book is uh, that, you know, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, we we The world is an incredibly complex place, and it's going to unfold in a variety of ways. And I think some are going to be good, and some are going to be bad, and almost all are going to be unpredictable. So you're kind of asking me about my mood, right? Do I feel good <laughs> or do I... And, i don't I don't have you know I my mood changes. Um, what worries me is, on one hand, seeing the extremism that has taken hold. You know, on the larger scene, I've been really kind of devastated by seeing the way that ideology can take over a group of intelligent people. I mean, I, I see that in my workplace. And I also, you know, have seen it at the highest levels of government in this country and others. So I, I appreciate in a way that I never have before that human beings can allow a dynamic that can lead to a real um, political movement that can do a lot of damage. On the other hand, you know, I see that young people, they are have been forced to reckon with the fact that we have these competing narratives, neither of which are, fully completely true and i think that you know they're smarter than um the older people in some sense in in the sense that they appreciate they have to take things with a grain of salt and that they have to you know challenge and 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 be skeptical about what people say And so there is the possibility that we're going to rise above the the effects of misinformation in the not-too-distant future. But we're going to continue, you know, with greater and lesser polarization. I do think there's the possibility that the extremes will not govern discourse in the next few years the way they have in the last few years. And if that happens, we'll all feel better about our future.
1: Steve and Phil, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having us. This was great. Enjoyed it a lot.
1: Yeah, this was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails About the clouds when we're together. Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather, happy trains to you till we meet again. Till we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when
2: we're together Just sing the song and bring the
1: sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet